Welcome to the Film Comment podcast. I'm Devika Girish, the co-deputy editor of Film Comment, and I am reporting from the sunny or maybe not so sunny shores of Cannes. The 2023 Cannes Festival is currently underway, and as news of spit takes and hot takes, raves and pans, walkouts and standing ovations flood your feed, the Film Comment crew will keep you up to date on all the cinematic goings on at the Crosset with dispatches, interviews, podcasts and more. So make sure to subscribe to the Film Comment podcast and the Film Comment letter and follow along. Welcome to the first episode of the Film Comment podcast from the 2023 Cannes Film Festival. We are back on the cross set for another couple weeks of an insane movie marathon and lots of glamorous premieres and tired critics telling you what they thought about them. And as I did last year, maybe this is an annual tradition now. I'm joined by uh two critics i admire very much two film comment contributors to talk about the first couple of days of premieres and also a little bit about what we're looking forward to in the coming days so i'm going to ask my compatriots here to introduce themselves jessica hi i'm jessica kiang um i am here covering for variety for i'll be doing a piece for film comment later on and a few bits for sight and sound and i'm jordan cronk covering uh the festival for art forum and also doing some stuff for Film Common as well. Cool. Great to have you on. Listeners, if you hear some, I don't know, choppers, some wind, just know we're on a very we're yeah. on a very beautiful terrace in the south of France and um, But it is also raining. But it is also raining. But it just goes to show you that not 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 delayed flights, not rain, not bad ticketing, <laughs> anything can stop us from bringing you the Film Common exactly, podcast. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, uh not a lot of films have screened but the openers have obviously all screened so i think we'll jump right into that and only one amongst us has bravely bravely experienced the opening night film the opening night film of the competition uh Jean Duberry by Mai Wen and that is Jessica do you want to tell us about how that was yes absolutely um i think it was also slightly to make up for last year when i hadn't seen the opener and i was doing this we did this, the opposite this, you know, yeah. we did exactly the opposite so this time i i uh, i did brave it i actually wasn't intending to see this i'm not a huge fan of my one um i have been in paris for the last two weeks and it's screened pre-screened there and i had a clash but also i wasn't particularly enthused about going to see the my when movie starring johnny depp um and so uh i had kind of written it off and i was going to you know use that time otherwise however i heard from several friends whom i ordinarily trust several ex friends i should say uh that it actually you know there was a sort of a, a a general feeling that you know what it's not that bad and actually some of them were like you know actually it's quite good so i felt like for completism's sake aside from everything else um i should go and see it so i went to see it yesterday and it is that bad ah. and those people are no longer <laughs> my friends it is i thought it was awful like truly awful in a particularly uh self-serving way um and the fact that it also then stars Johnny Depp and that there's this sort of been this general brouhaha around Johnny Depp's return um which has been sort of kind of grotesquely embraced but here uh, in Cannes um is also you know is is yet another thing to to bring to it 
if if I had liked the film, that would be something I would have to, you know, really contend with. Yeah, and do acrobatics um, yes, around. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, thankfully, I didn't like the film at all. Um, and it really reminded me. So it is the story of Jeanne du Barry, um, the king of France's famous mistress, um, and uh, played by Mai Wen. The film itself can be read really directly as a very clear, you know, very. It's obviously a very personal project for Mai Wen, um, but the entire thing just becomes this weird apologia for for um, a, you know, really it does end up being sort of a shill for the patriarchy, despite the fact that we are talking about uh, a woman you are so, supposed to admire this this woman who has like who, who overcame her humble beginnings um, to become the most celebrated courtesan in France, um, but there's absolutely no political context here. In fact, a lot of the people who were sort of saying, well, you know, okay, fine, there's there's all these sort of dodgy aspects to it, but, you know, the actual film itself is, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's eye candy and there's, like, nice costumes and everything. And it was really reminding me of those people who justified being obsessed with the coronation. Because when they were saying, like, oh, I, you know, I don't like the monarchy, but I, I just love the pomp. Uh, I don't like think, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, like Nick Cave. But, I, I mean, I just don't think that you can divorce those two things. Mm -hmm. The pomp is part of it. If you And it is a political statement. And it is in service of a seat of power of a yeah. seat of power yeah. and of a particular um, kind of power structure which is played here very much for like it's grotesquery and we're supposed to be admiring of this woman managing to succeed despite this this uh, this these grotesque power structures that which she has to that she has to sort of negotiate and deal with but it actually ends up admiring those power structures it ends up being a sort of a, a, a real yeah, a real apology for for um, the aristocrat, uh, you know, aristocratic uh, uh, mindset of France at the time, and then also, of course, we can read it a lot into the fact that it's Johnny Depp playing this character, the fact that um, the way that the, this relationship is portrayed, we're supposed to think that the king of fucking France and this and Jean Dubarry, who famously her necklace was part of the whole reason that the, the French uh, um, uh, Revolution happened, um, that they're just two crazy kids in love, you know? And actually there's no, there's absolutely zero outside context given. This is literally like four or five years before the revolution happened. And there is no sense of what he is like as a king. We see Marie Antoinette is a, a minor character in it. She comes in and all of that stuff is just played for how it is going to impact on Jean Dubarry's standing in court. Um, there's this uh, horrible trio of basically like fairy tale villains who are the, his, uh, the king's daughters um, uh, who are you know, really grotesque. Like Cinderella's ugly steps. I mean, absolutely uh, played like that, like really broadly. Um, and again, all of it is just to, to, to sort of build up this character of Jean Dubarry as this, for one thing unbelievably sexually irresistible woman um who uh you know who is using living by her wits and and her her sort of general decency um there's a particularly grotesque moment where she is gifted a young a, a small black boy like literally tied up in a in a box who's given to her as a as a present by the king um and we're somehow expected to find her immediate uh, relationship with this boy and how she takes him on and, and says, no, no, he's not a slave, he's my servant, as <laughs> some sort of evidence of her incredible progressive liberal Sorry. ideals. Um, it's, it's, it, I mean, honestly, it's, it's actually nauseating and I found it by the end completely enraging. Um, yeah, I hated this movie. Mm. <laughs> you know, I was feeling bad about getting here a day late and I'm starting to feel better and better. <laughs> um, I can say a little bit about another opening night movie I saw, which was the opening of the Kinzan 
the director's fortnight, which is the Goldman case by Cedric Kahn. I this is my first Cedric Kahn movie, so I didn't. I mean, I know a little bit about the kind of work he makes, but I didn't go in with a lot of um, you know expectations. And I I have to say I was pleasantly surprised. I mean, it is it's a pretty straightforward courtroom drama. It's about Pierre Goldman, who was this French sort of militant in the 60s and 70s, a kind of revolutionary whose parents were part of the immigrant wing of the French resistance during the Holocaust. He's so he's like a Jewish immigrant and he was part of a lot of revo- revolutionary struggles in Latin America. He was actually distant from the 68 protests in Paris because he found them not serious or committed enough and and he was more sort of committed to these global uh, communist struggles and basically you know at some point came back to france fell on some hard times and started robbing like small businesses banks you know just to get by and he eventually there was a pharmacy robbery that he was that ended in the death of two just like innocent women in the pharmacy that he was arrested for and accused of and initially given a life sentence and put in prison and i think he was in prison for maybe 5 years or something like that but eventually in, during that time he wrote a book he took classes and he wrote a book about his life and then some inconsistencies in the investigation became clear and a lot of famous french intellectuals were sort of moved by his book including like jean paul sartre um and he the case was so the this movie is the second trial the kind of appeal and the entire movie is in the courtroom i mean the entire movie is just the trial and it is like i was saying very straightforward i mean it's like him then the lawyers then the defendants you're just like going to each of them and occasionally cutting to his lawyer strategizing about how to defend him because he's such a maverick kind of guy and like doesn't even want to doesn't even want to really follow the rule book for defending himself and i think what is striking about the movie is that despite its straightforwardness it's actually pretty nuanced in the ideas it gets across and i don't know if that's just because he maybe was that kind of guy and his arguments were nuanced but you know very early in the movie he so he's accused of like four robberies around that time and he admits to committing three of them but not the one that resulted in murders in death so he, uh, and you know as the trial starts you know they they get ready to call upon people to you know talk about his character like what kind of child he was and he's like it doesn't matter what my personality or character is it doesn't matter if i'm a good or a bad man what matters are the facts that i'm innocent so that kind of sets the tone for this and that does i think i found it moving because it somehow does zoom out into a lot of conversations we're having about carceral politics and the workings of the prison and the court systems and the various ways in which we assess innocent uh, innocence and guilt by things that can be absolutely irrelevant to whether a person you know has done the act or not like so many other things go into it and here one of the things that is explored is how his jewishness and the fact that his parents were part of a militant resistance to the nazis and the fact that there is like you know anti-semitism of course but there there's also a very uh, another striking moment in which he says the one of the only things he says in his closing statement is that i hope i have not implied that a jew cannot commit murders or that like i i hope i have not tried to imply that i'm innocent because you are anti-semitic so it's like 
just treading so many fine lines, um, just the entire process of the case and bringing together both the, you know, every courtroom drama is about the like fucking pageantry of the court, right? Like it's all fucking theater and it's so cynical. It's so moving, but it's all cynical. You know, it feels cynical because it's about like how you can just take a bunch of vague facts together and craft them into a moving narrative and then deliver them, you know, to the jury in a way that makes an impression. So it kind of gets to that, but it also is, I think, delineating a political moment in a way that felt so precise and timely, you know, like how identity politics, where identity politics came out of, because they were, you know, identities are the basis of persecution, have been for a long time. And at the same time, how they have been cynically used and how many, you know, revolutionaries have been pushing against that for a long time. And uh, Goldman is played by the actor Aryeh Warthalter. I think he's a Belgian actor who... Um, I, I don't know if I've seen him in any other movies before. Um, I think he was just fantastic. You know, I think it's a performance where it would have been really easy to be like this crazy guy, this kind of caricature or just like, you know, um, just play like a, t a particular type of hot headed revolutionary intellectual who's a little bit like, you know, off the rails. And there's just something so sincere about his performance. And at the same time, he does seem like a disturbed man, you know, just disturbed by his life experiences. And I so I, I just, you know, sometimes you see something like this, which is just a procedural. It just sticks to, you know, all the all the familiar beats, but you come away learning something quite interesting and being moved by it. And that was my experience. I, I think it might also be interesting just to say, to point out that there's a film that's un under embargo that I've already seen that is in competition, which is also a French courtroom drama. Um, and it, seems, it sounds to me like it's going to be, it does sort of the sexism version of what you're talking about a little bit. It's the Justine Trier film. So I won't pass any like qualitative ju judgments on it. But it one of the things that was interesting to me about that was um, we're very used to courtroom dramas, but we, we're used to them being set in the US court system. So we're very used to like the, you know, objection, uh, but your honor, all that kind of, that kind of pageantry. So even, even on a on a, a base level, it's interesting to see how differently the French courts work, and especially in the context of last year's Saint Omer, which was such a brilliant, a truly brilliant um, courtroom drama as well. So we're we're sort of getting this this new insight into the way the French courts work specifically as well. There seems to be more room for like almost editorializing on the part of the of the lawyers. And, That's um, what I yeah. I observe yeah. too. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I again, I, I don't know how representative that is of how things work in general here, but there was just a, I mean, the U.S. Uh, court proceedings are extremely theatrical, but there was just, you know, uh, I mean, I think the Goldman case really shows how much they bring in, like, or uh, how much they were, like, trying to bring in their own personal histories, like the lawyers, two of them are Jewish, they want to speak from that standpoint, but they're not sure if that's going to tip the scales too much. And and um, yeah, I was uh, really kind of stunned by some of the, you know, closing speeches of the case as they're dramatized in the film. Um, I have to say, Santa Omer was on my mind too while watching, and it, it's sort of like, it sets such a high bar because it's formally, this film was not formally very interesting, you know, and, and Santa Omer does everything sort of in an interesting way. So it's, you know, I wouldn't speak of the two in the same terms, but I it is like two very different kinds of cases, two different points in history. And I do think that they 
a, there may be contribution. And I'm excited to see the Justine Triette film and sort of this canon of uh, French courtroom dramas. Um, this is not an opening film, but I know that Jordan and I have seen another kind of anticipated film. Uh, one of the many long, long... <laughs> monstrous titles and monstrous simply in size at one, this of, one of festival. six uh, films over three hours I think oh my god not counting two three hour four hour plus restorations but yeah a lot of long films it's too much this is why I chose this film over the Cedric Khan film I was like I I'm going to watch it. I got to watch it like the first thing. Or else, <laughs> yeah, the before... four and a half hour documentary goes first. Yeah. So why don't you tell us what it's about? Uh, this is a new documentary by Steve McQueen. It's called Occupied City. Um, made in collaboration with uh, his wife and uh, occasional collaborator, uh, Bianca Stigter, I think, uh, who was a filmmaker in her own right. Uh, her most recent film was called Three Minutes at Lengthening, which ties into this in some fashion. Uh, she's a Dutch filmmaker and artist who is particularly interested in the history of the Holocaust in uh, Amsterdam or in the Netherlands. Um, and she, the three minutes of lengthening is actually about a small village in Poland. But this film is based on a book she wrote about the history of the Holocaust in World War II in the Netherlands, obviously in the early 40s. So McQueen directed it, but it's she wrote the very long and lengthy voiceover narration. Um, but it essentially is a four and a half hour kind of, I don't know, yeah, nonfiction film portrait of this, the city of uh, Amsterdam, but it's told kind of in two time periods. It tells in voiceover about specific people and incidences and uh, locations uh, in Amsterdam during the war. And then that's contrasted with present day images of Amsterdam at usually the same locations uh, that are being spoken of, but it also weaves in footage of the protests during the pandemic and the kind of unrest that was happening in the Netherlands at that time. Uh, so it's all, there's no like archival footage, it's all brand new, like present day footage of, of Amsterdam. And then his voiceover narration by a, by a female voice actor is speaking of or telling these stories about specific individual people, like very in depth, very detailed. And usually it's like preceded by the addresses of the places that they're showing on screen. And they talk about like, if the place has now been demolished or if it's something else. So it's usually like houses or like now they're markets or restaurants or something. Uh, some of them are the same buildings as before. Um, so it's sort of, uh, it's not simple, but it's very straightforward for the duration, which as I said, is quite long. Uh, and I found it maybe more informationally interesting than like also formally, uh, like you were saying about the other film. Um, there are some moments where he kind of breaks this pattern and has these kind of like a uh, Ernie Gare or Michael Snow-esque things with the camera or twirling and it's going through the cityscape, uh, which is very nice for a couple minutes here and there. Uh, but for the most part, it is just voiceover and like images of landscapes or buildings. And um, yeah, I learned a lot because it's very dense like it's literally like almost non-stop narration and it just goes from one kind of a episode or incident to the next so it deals with uh or like one location to the next one location basic. to the next yeah, yeah. and so it, it talks about everything from like uh jewish artworks that were concealed and then taken out of museums at the time to like uh different street names that were named after jewish people that have been uh, that were taken down or renamed during uh the war and uh and then yeah it's also just specific like people and doctors and 
things like this. So yeah, yeah I found it people who hid in like uh, hid in other people's homes yeah. to yeah. escape. And there's one about a person who would take like a Nazi sympathizer would take in Jewish people and then turn them in. Like it's yeah. yeah. So there's obviously very troubling things throughout. Um, but yeah, the, the imagery is quite nice. And then the present day stuff, like I said, is like pandemic related unrest uh, on both sides of uh, the aisle, I guess. Um, but yeah, a lot of uh, kind of anti-fascist movements, but also like anti-COVID things. And uh, so it's kind of an interesting document of like 2020, 2021. And then, uh, and also just this, I guess, I don't know the book, but I'm assuming these are the things she details in the book. I and mean, these are just the stories that she goes into detail about. So yeah, it's very, very interesting. And uh, yeah, I tend to like McQueen's like art, like artist cinema, like his film, his installation that he had in Rotterdam this year, Sunshine State is like one of my favorite things I've seen all year, but his narrative films tend to leave me like cold a little bit. So this is more maybe in the vein that I like. And yeah, it's, it's quite nice. Um, and yeah, I don't know what you thought about it, David, but. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. I think I'm a little colder on it than you. I think it's conceptually more interesting than than in execution. I just, I think over the course of the four and a half hours, the conceit did, did just the, the thing that I already knew it would do, right? Which is juxtaposing the past and the present and making us think about how the locations we occupy walk around in the present and infuse with our present day politics already carry traces and memories of, you know, um, history, which are like not fully resolved or known. I mean, the streets we're walking on were sites of massacres, you know, this sort of thing. I don't know if that idea grows or complicates or deepens at all. Oh, it doesn't. Yeah, it's like the same thing. And even like how dense it is makes it some of it passed by without you even thinking, like you zone out a little bit, or I did. I, and not just because it's dense, the voiceover is very mechanical. Yeah, yeah. It's very kind of, um, it doesn't really have much affect. And the cinematography is beautiful, I think. I mean, yeah. the shots of present day Amsterdam are really gorgeous, beautifully framed. But there is that kind of clinical um, touch to the whole film. I mean, I kept thinking of uh, Heimat is a space and time. Yeah. Uh, the Thomas Heiser yeah, yeah. film, which I much better, yeah. yeah, but yeah, similar idea. I didn't think of that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, I mean, I, I don't want to make a glib comparison, but I do think there's similar ideas where there's. Um, I mean, Heiser uses, I think, present day and archival yeah. material, but it is kind of all these archival texts, whether it's letters, diaries, his own reflections, which are not archival, but his own reflections about his own family juxtaposed with footage of present day Vienna, Berlin, and then also archival footage. And that movie is also long and dense, but so moving. I yeah. mean, it's it's really emotionally striking because of the way the personal is inserted into it. And because I think the juxtapositions between the archival material and the present day scenes are purposeful. I'm not sure if they were that purposeful here beyond the kind of associative idea of like, this is the same location where something else happened. And because of this kind of very simple, straightforward conceit. I don't know if the film's political impact is as 
powerful or contextualized. For instance, the voiceover says something about Nazi curfews, and then we oh, see right. protests yep. against COVID-19 curfews. Yeah. That was a little... Yeah. Right? And I think maybe the point is the irony, but then there are other scenes where we're seeing George Floyd protests against the murder of George Floyd. So it, it's just kind of scrambled. And for some, you know, I don't think it's really making the points that it wants to make because it's so stripped down, one note. So, yeah, I just, I just, I mean, I, I really was spent yeah. about an hour and a half in. You know, I really was just spent. I wish it was a little more analytical, that's for sure. Like, I hate to compare him, but like her other, like I was saying, uh, Stichter's other film, Three Minutes three minutes of lengthening literally looks at like a three minute piece of film and analyzes like every face and every uh like sign and like it's very yeah. uh involving and like illuminating in different ways uh that this film it doesn't quite it, it's a completely different thing but uh it almost sounds was, like the inverse of yeah it, that was way, yeah. i don't know to me it was just more effective but uh yeah i didn't enjoy the film as far as like it was easy to watch and for that Easy walk. to watch. Whoa, short. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't like a, it wasn't super demanding in the sense. Like I said, it was kind of like easy to almost let it wash over you, which yeah. maybe not the point though. So it knows? is beautiful. I mean, yeah. to look at, but I don't know if that works in its favor. You know, yeah. uh, it's just something a little glossy about it that I I couldn't penetrate. But interesting, nevertheless. I I just I don't know, man. I think I think artists need to like move and shake their films a little more, you know? Don't be afraid of fucking moving and shaking and feeling and making us feel things like, this is my one note. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. I think we have one more film to get to that, Jessica, you've seen. That's uh, right. It's the Semaine de la Critique opener called Ama Gloria. And talking of films that move and emote and all of those <laughs> things, that is, this is very definitely one of those in, in that um, register. Um, it is directed by Marie Amachukali. Um, and it is basically the story, Gloria, the Gloria of the title is um, the Cape Verdean nanny um, of the little six-year-old girl called Cleo, uh, who lives in Paris. Um, and they're very, they have this very close bond. She's really she's an absolutely beloved member of the family. Um, but uh, then uh, Gloria has to go home to Cape Verde. Um, and so uh, uh, Cleo's father agrees to let her go, to let uh, Cleo go and spend like a last summer in Cape Verde with Gloria and her family, who she is returning to, um, including her to her daughter and her son, her son who's just a little bit older than Cleo herself, and her son who basically was obviously the kid that she left in order to raise Cleo in uh, mm. in Paris. So there's this really um, it's 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 not the most original story in the world. In fact, for this sort of world cinema thing that we're that you know we're all participating in here, it's quite a familiar story, and the, the framework of it, the structure of it, is actually quite familiar. However, the one thing that it has, which is just an amazing secret weapon, is a truly unbelievably astonishing central performance from the mm. six-year-old actress playing Cleo. Um, really one of the best child performances I've ever seen because in this, there are moments in this where it's, you know, it isn't, the, the action of the film isn't organized around her. It's very much from her. It's very much about her six-year-old motivations, the way she's seeing the world. And there's one thing that she does halfway through the film or like a little bit towards the end of the film where 
it's it's a you know she does a, a very bad thing um and she has to she has to justify it then afterwards she's caught in the act of this bad thing and she has to justify it and it's like this this full on like very psychologically complex performance moment mm. that sh- somehow the director manages to get out of this 6 year old and it's utterly believable and really heartrending um uh, so and i also i mean i i'm i'm very much a fan of child performances that aren't cute and she is she is cute because she's just gorgeous <laughs> and an amazing person but like there's there's no cutesiness to her performance um, at all it's just really she's a real little person like a real protagonist of this of this um, of this film and so it is entirely elevated for me and becomes super moving towards mm. the end I mean I was in floods of tears towards the end um, just because of the the nuances that this this little girl can bring and there also I should say there's, there's a, a flourish as well which I wasn't sure about at the beginning where there are animated segments um, uh, and they're sort of you, you get the impression they're done in this sort of like painted form where you don't actually see features on faces and and uh, initially I was like I was a little bit unsure about those what they were really doing and then it sort of becomes clear that these are sort of almost uh, Cleo's inner thoughts and it, there is something interesting about thinking about like how a six-year-old sees the world and you just haven't seen that many faces when you're six mm. years old and so maybe you do sort of just register people as blobs or whatever it is um, and she just they sort of like a, a very emotive sort of warm um, but brush-strokey kind of style to those and then there is so I was a little bit uh, iffy on those and mm. then but then there is a moment a very dramatic moment that happens later on where it really comes good where the fact that she can switch into this uh, animated register really works and it, it, it gives you something added um, that I don't think was there before. So, so yeah, overall, I think it's a really, really strong film. I, I believe it's a debut. Okay. Um, uh, again, not, it's, not going to, it's not groundbreaking in terms of its structure. Um, it's very nicely shot. It isn't sort of particularly pioneering or groundbreaking, but it is, um, especially just because of that child performance, it really elevates it and actually becomes exactly what you were hoping to, to find in, in this sort of, you know, easily moving, very easy to watch, um, but uh, really in, in certain aspects, um, quite special little film. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Great. Well, uh, you know, sometimes I feel like opening nights are usually, uh, not usually, but are sometimes kind of depressing <laughs> at major festivals. And uh, Myron, notwithstanding, <laughs> it feels, you know, I, I feel upbeat about this first podcast. We're, we're, we're all feeling, uh, you know, positive. Always good. <laughs> so just it'll, to, it'll wear off soon. Don't worry. I know, I know. <laughs> Wait till we all come back all cranky. Um, I just want to do like a couple minutes of maybe talking about what we're looking forward to seeing in the coming days. So Jordan, do you want to start us off? Sure. Um, the, the movies I think I'm looking forward to the most, uh, Lissandra Alonso has a new film called Eureka, which has been in the works uh, like nine years. His last film was How Ha, which premiered here in 2014, I think. Um, and I don't, I've been purposely not like reading much about it, but I know this film is set in multiple continents, so in many different time periods and is a little more epic than his other films. Uh, Viggo Mortensen, I think, is also in one part of this film. Uh, so I'm very much looking forward to that. And maybe um, you want to say a little about the section it's in just for listeners. Oh, it's in Can Premiere, which is a semi-new section that they implemented in 2021, I think was the first year. Uh, they decided that in that time period to switch into Tin Regard, which is like the second level competition to younger filmmakers, like the first, maybe your first, second, third feature. Uh, whereas before it used to include some veterans, like how, how was in there at that, mm. at that time period, for example. 
Um, and a pitcher pong has had films in Unsertin regard, but now it's mostly young filmmakers. And so they added this other section for like, it's like an overflow auteur section that I tend to think of it actually as like, they're maybe too weird for competition in some cases. Mm. Uh, Cause there's always interesting films there, but they're like, I don't know. I, I don't really don't know the idea behind the section, but it's kind of just like an extra section of like yeah. main directors. I think, I think they can be e either too, it's, it's, it's such a mixed bag because they can yeah. be either too weird and therefore much more interesting yeah. films, but also they can be films that where it's it's a, a mate of Thierry Frémaux who has made a movie yeah. and he's a oh, name yeah. and um, it's not good enough for competition and probably wouldn't even be good enough for Onsetta Regard so he's going <laughs> to put stick him in Cannes Premier instead yeah. so there's there's also that so you're like you're really you're you're taking your life into your hands yeah. with the Cannes Premier title because it's either going to be really fantastic and out there or it's going to be very staid and and something that wouldn't really have qualified for any of the things it's also just confusing because it's another out yeah. of competition section yeah. so they have out of competition they have have special, special screenings, screenings and they have Cannes Premiere now and so wh wh which you know one of the screen yeah. which, which one of those sections a particular film goes into is is a really it's a, a very arcane mystery what the <laughs> logic is behind it yeah. yeah and I think the I think the other film I'm looking forward to is also in Cannes Premiere if I'm not mistaken uh, the new Victor Riche film mm. um, I think it's called Close Your Eyes or something like that mm. um but this is his first film since The Quince Tree Sun, 1982. He's only made three films ever. Yeah. Yeah, this um, is a big deal. Yeah, so I'm very excited for this. It's like a, another almost three hour, but it looks like a drama of some sort. I have no idea <laughs> what inspired him to make this film at this point, but I'm excited. Uh, so yeah, those are probably the two big ones oh. for me. And Scorsese, mm. yes. who's not excited about that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm also excited for the Scorsese. Yeah. I think it's, um, yeah, uh, I think uh, I'm, the other one I'm particularly looking forward to is the Jonathan Glazer film. I'm oh, a yeah, Glazer fan. Um, so, and that also, that one stars uh, Sandra Huller, who is in the Justine Trier film, um, which I can't say I'm looking forward to because I've already seen it. But um, <laughs> had I not seen it, I would be looking forward <laughs> to it. Um, uh, yes, um, uh, I think that the Glazer is probably the, the one that I'm most um, excited about now yeah. at the moment. But uh, just to say, like, as an overview of the sections and the way the competition, the way that the, the official selection is shaping up already, and I have this weird perspective on it because this is the first year I've done this thing where I have gone to Paris beforehand to mm. watch as many of the pre-screenings as I can. So um, I haven't seen very much of the competition, for example, but I have seen quite a few Ancetan Regard films and some from Semen and some from Directors Fortnight. Um, and I think there's a there is a I feel anyway there's a general uh, like move where I, I feel like Uncertain Regard is surprisingly solid this year um, okay. it's like in, in years past it has it has been very up and down yeah. but I've seen a lot that I've really liked in Uncertain Regard so there's a pretty strong section this year I think um, and uh, as opposed to Directors Fortnight which I have not been particularly impressed mm. by the films that I have seen there and there was a strange there was a rumor anyway that because it's a new guy in, in charge yeah, yeah. this year that Kanzen had uh, had instigated a policy this year where they weren't going to consider any film that had even been put forward for the official selection so that's one of the reasons that we're all surmising that the Robin Campillo film which is actually opening here in France at the end of the month and clearly expected to be getting some sort of can birth um, when it was 
presumably passed over for the official selection didn't actually end up in Director's Fortnight. In years past, I think that would have happened. So the, the Director's Fortnight selection, and certainly all the Paris journalists, all the French journalists, were very perplexed by it because a lot of this, this stuff there doesn't even have a French distributor. It's like, you know really very much out of left field. Um, and I haven't been particularly impressed by anything I have seen there. There's one one film in there that I've heard very good things about. But in general, other other a lot of the other stuff that I've seen has been pretty middle mm. of the road. Well, there's a hong so, in there. So a there was a hong in there. There's a hong at the end. Guaranteed quality. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, yeah. I'll uh, I'll just shout out La Quimera. Uh, oh, yeah. Ali Chiro Walker, I, yeah. you know, just one of my favorite filmmakers. Uh, her first feature since Happy as Lazaro uh, from 2018, yeah. which I loved. So, and screening on the, the very last, day, yeah. last Friday. So, um, you know, it's going to be a long wait for that one, but it's I'm, also it's what I it's in what I now consider the Kelly Reichardt slot because that's, that's where I, yes, that's exactly, exactly how I and, thought of and it. And sometimes <laughs> sometimes it gives me pause when like something is put very much at the end of the festival. Um, you think is, is that some sort of reflection on it on its quality? But then I remember showing up, which was I think so. I think it was being finished. Fiction. That's why it's last. I've heard uh, not uh, that it not a mark on the quality. Oh, okay. So I've heard. Good. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, all this, all this like speculation. Yeah. As journalists sitting here doing our little <laughs> gossiping about why things. No, because I thought the same thing. I'm like, oh, it's at the end. What does that mean? Yeah. But no, I think she's was, yeah. is still maybe finishing. So. And I don't even need to say this, but I'm excited for May December by Todd Haynes. Yeah. I mean, another kind of like who isn't mm -hmm. uh, as a, as a big Todd Haynes fan. So, you know, quite quite some stuff to look forward to. There's a long uh, Wang Bing film. You know, Scorsese is as we mentioned. Um, so yeah, keep on listening, folks. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> and uh, we'll, we'll bring you more insights uh, on whatever's happening on the crossette. And thank you, Jessica and Jordan. Thank you. You're very welcome, Jessica. <laughs> the Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.